Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Hartwig family, Barbara and Peter Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckettes join me shortly in our topics this week. Governor Parson says no to clean Missouri. One legislator says no to Kansas City's e-tax. And Democrats say no way to Hillary. Plus, roast and toast. But we start with our newsmaker segment and focus our attention on Johnson County and what's ahead for the county commission. Joining me is a veteran of county politics and government, a former councilman and mayor of Overland Park, a former county commissioner, and now getting set to begin his third term as chairman of the Johnson County Commission, Ed Eilert. Mr. Chairman, welcome back to Ruckus. Thank you very much for coming Well, in. Mike, thank you very much. It's good to be back with you. Well, you have been doing this kind of work for a long, long time uh, in government and politics in Johnson County. Have you run your last term or run your last election campaign? Well, uh, my third term is a four-year term. Uh, I anticipate that... Uh, uh, I'll not be a candidate again, but you can never tell. You you may have said that before. I think I I'm, <laughs> I, I think I have. remember you saying that uh, a time or two ago. Uh, the chairman does more than officiate at the county commission meetings. What are some of the other duties? Well, the responsibilities of the uh, of the commission and the chairman are outlined in the uh, charter that was passed back in 2000 by the voters, and uh, uh, our primary responsibility is in the policy area. Uh, we have a professional management, a county manager, who's responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of the county. And uh, so we as commissioners uh, are responsible for oversight, uh, approving budgets, and uh, making uh, broad policy decisions. And I think the county chair is seen as a spokesperson, more or less, for the county government. I think that's a responsibility that's also mentioned in the, uh, in the charter. You're going to have a slightly different commission as you begin 2019. You've got a couple of new members, both female, two of the four who uh, campaigned against incumbents on the board, talking about the problems with an all-male, all-white city or county commission. How do you think things are going to change if they're going to change at all with this new membership? Well, it's been my opportunity in local government uh, to work with many talented ladies uh, in elected positions. And uh, so I'm looking forward to working with Janae and Becky uh, as we uh, uh, proceed over the next four years. I think they uh, are believed to be Democrats, and many of the county commissioners are heretofore Republicans. And one of your colleagues on the commission suggested that maybe county elections in Johnson County ought to be partisan because people generally know what party the candidates are associated with. Well, one, one of the issues that was also approved by voters back in 2000 was uh, uh, that county commissioners would run for office uh, nonpartisan without county label. Uh, every 10 years, uh, we have a charter review commission, which reviews all aspects of the charter. And I'm sure that provision is going to be uh, uh, well discussed at our next uh, charter well, what's review. Your, what's your thought about it? Do you see any need not to have partisan elections? Well, it's interesting. When this issue was on the ballot in 2000, I was one of those who opposed going to nonpartisan elections. But I think it's worked very well. Uh, most of the issues that we deal with uh, 
uh, do not require a party label uh, in order to make uh, sound decisions. At this early stage of the new year 2019, what do you see developing as the top two or three issues the county commission will be dealing with? Well, one of them will be ongoing. Uh, in 2018, was very, very active. Uh, for instance, we begin construction of the new courthouse, uh, a medical examiner's office, and we also begin a, uh, a wastewater project rebuilding of Tomahawk Creek. Uh, and uh, those projects, the courthouse and Tomahawk Creek, are about two and a half to three year projects. So those will continue uh, over the next year or two years. Uh, also, uh, we began uh, a couple of years ago uh, to work very diligently in the area of mental health and criminal justice. Uh, and the National Association of Counties recognized Johnson County as an innovator county for their work in that area. Uh, that work will continue, uh, working with our partner cities, working with our school districts, uh, in issues that uh, involve mental health. As you look toward Topeka, what are some of your thoughts about the uh, new legislature and the incoming governor? Well, it'll be interesting. We've been in this situation before. Uh, Kathleen Sebelius was governor right. uh, and uh, Laura Kelly now. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Uh, there may be a little more tension. Well, some of what happens there will be uh, causing difficulties, perhaps, for what you are able to do in county government. One of the issues that, uh, or there are several issues, but one of the issues that we've uh, talked about last year and again this year is to uh, uh, see if we can uh, get some leeway, some flexibility in the tax lid. Right. Uh, areas like uh, mental, health, or mental health services, uh, health services themselves, uh, CAPERS funding, uh, and those issues. I'm going to have to stop you there. Out of time. It's great to see you again. Thank you very well, much. Well, Mike, for thank you in. very much. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Johnson County Commission Chairman Ed Eilert. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus. Patrick McInerney is a former prosecutor, now in private practice with Spencer Fain. Patrick Tuey is director of municipal policy at the Show Me Institute, a free market think tank. Michelle Watley is founder of the Grio Consulting Group, and Woody Kozad is head of the Kozad Company, a government relations firm, a plethora of Patrick's present. Patriarch. Patrick McCozad. Yeah. Welcome, <laughs> uh, welcome back to the panel and to all of you. It's the first program of the new year, and there is no shortage of topics, both old and new, to talk about, so let's begin. Not all election results are as conclusive as they may seem. Missouri Governor Mike Parson provides a good example. He was elected lieutenant governor, but moved to the top spot when Eric Greitens was forced to resign. Now Parson wants a different result for what was called clean Missouri by its backers and passed by voters last fall. Parson believes the plan to appoint a so-called non-partisan demographer to draw the state's legislative districts after next year's census is unconstitutional and should be changed by the state legislature. The process is referred to as repeal and replace, a term not unfamiliar to folks who follow politics. <coughs> well, there's much more to the story, but let's start there. Can the Missouri legislature undo what Missouri voters approved? And we start with Patrick Tuohy. 
uh, well, not by themselves. They can put something, a constitutional amendment, before the people, and the people would have to vote on it. So, so the legislature can get the ball rolling, but it cannot by itself uh, overrule the, the vote of the people on a constitutional amendment. At least. Do you think that's going to happen? I, I gave up years ago trying to predict what legislatures will do, but, you know, I, I understand uh, and appreciate both sides of the argument. I think the initiative process is important. Uh, I think it is necessary and ought to be respected, but that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, you want a, a state to descend into mob rule without protections for uh, individual rights or, or constitutional process. So what do you spend a lot of time in Jeff City when the legislature is in session? What's going to happen with this Clean Missouri Amendment? Well, I think the Republicans are worried enough about the demographer. The other portions of it they don't like. They figure the courts will strike down anyway as unconstitutional. Uh, the demographer worries them because, look, if you look at the interest groups that put up the money for this, they're all liberal groups, just without exception. This is actually the filibuster amendment to restore the filibuster uh, and make it available to Democrats in the Missouri legislature. Because right now, if the Democrats try and filibuster in the Senate, they don't have the votes to keep the filibuster going. The Republicans just have a party-line vote and shut them up. They just want to get enough districts to be able to filibuster. The only filibusters that stand up now in the Missouri Senate are run by Republicans, who, by the way, were the ones doing most of filibustering this last session, because the Democrats have just given up. Uh, there are so few of them. So their real aim, I know some of these people, I represent some of these people, and their real aim is to get just enough dem more Democratic seats to be able to sustain a filibuster. So do you think, Michelle, that it's possible to find a demographer who is nonpartisan and will structure these districts in a fair, equitable way? I mean, I think it's possible. That's the whole point of the amendment, correct? It's to ensure that the, the you know, redistricting is done in a nonpartisan way and that people get what they essentially voted for, um, free and, and, you know, fair elections and, you know, um, uh, campaign finance reform, all of the things that people have been wanting, which is why they voted for the issue. So that's the point of the of the amendment to ensure that... Well, I understand the point, but can you actually find somebody who is a demographer who has no partisan judgments, <laughs> who is going to be absolutely accurate and fair in his or her assessments? I think that th that could be left to be The seen, answer is but... no. <laughs> the answer is no. And let's remember something. Most of these districts have been drawn by the courts, the members of which are chosen by a nonpartisan court system, and they're the ones who drew these districts. And the districts right now heavily favor the Republicans, as does the division of the state. At Trump won by 19 points. But that's a nonpartisan group of judges drawing these districts. And we, all know, we all know there's no politics in Patrick, oh, of course. Right, do, you, right. do you think the elections in Missouri have been handled unfairly, uh, the, the, the structure of the districts? Well, I, I and uh, circle the date on your calendar, because I agree with what Patrick said. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a, there's a sweet spot somewhere between the initiative process and the legislature ignoring the will of the people. I don't know exactly where that is, but there needs to be a, a higher threshold. We've experienced that in Kansas City, heaven knows. Uh, when there's a low threshold for the initiative process. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that, I think that that process needs to be respected, and we need to figure out where that tipping point is between, between uh, the will of the people and uh, the ability and to... And that's more of what Governor Parson was talking about, perhaps taking a hard look he at didn't do uh, a great job, the number though. of initiative uh, He just kind of tossed out, yeah. well, it, it's either unconstitutional or, or people don't understand yeah. why it's not right, yeah. and the idea I don't know what that, that means. The idea that we'll use politics to take politics out of politics is so absurd. I mean, the, the give and take between the popular vote and legislatures is, is natural. It's 
what our government was set up to respect, and we ought to let this go. This isn't a failure. So there has to be another election if this clean Missouri amendment's overturned? Uh, well, there are two things. I mean, number one, they can put something on the ballot. That's another election. Uh, if it if it is over, it can be overturned that way. Can the legislature way. do it, it by itself? No. Okay. No, no, no. This is a constitutional amendment. Correct. All they can do is propose another constitutional amendment and put it to a vote of the people. So we may be talking about clean Missouri in the For future. For a while. Yeah. <laughs> Plus the courts <laughs> may get involved. Would you say E-tax? Some Kansas Cityans think the E stands for essential. Critics might choose egregious. In reality, it stands for earnings and is a 1% income tax on those who live and or work in Kansas City, Missouri. City officials say it's irreplaceable, bringing in $260 million annually and providing about 42% of the city's budget. For not the first time, a Republican state legislator is pushing a bill that would phase out the tax, this time over a decade. Senator Bill Eigel of St. Charles says the tax in Kansas City and St. Louis impacts not only those cities, but the entire state and region. Kansas Cityans continue to approve the tax every five years, most recently by 77 percent. Would you say the state senator is undertaking a noble pursuit or is on a fool's errand? And we start with Patrick McInerney. I would say that Senator Eigel is Rex Sinkfield's latest crush. Um, because this is, and he is the latest. Last time it was Kurt Schaefer, right, carrying the water for Rex Singfield, who has this thing about the earnings tax in Kansas City and in St. Louis. And, you know, it, it's the same old song. In fact, Woody and I have had this conversation for a long time, a lot of years, um, about what the E-tax means. I mean, the E-tax funds public safety in Kansas City and in St. Louis. It funds first responders. It is a critical piece of funding for a city like Kansas City. And it's interesting because it's always the bombs being tossed by the guys from uh, wherever Eigel's from, out, just outside of St. Louis, these small, these tiny jurisdictions uh, that, that don't understand what it is to be a big and mature city and how to finance a big, mature city. And Senator Eigel's from St. Charles. That's not... Weldon Springs, uh, I think he says, uh, which has 5,300 folks. County. Yeah, and St. Charles, I mean, same point. You know, well, it, he, he says it not only affects the cities, but the regions and the districts that uh, encompass Yeah, and, and he says Kansas City and St. Louis are struggling under the burden of the e-tax that is in place right now. I mean, tell me who's struggling in Kansas City. Tell me why the how the economy in Patrick Kansas City Tui. is, is, is <laughs> try struggling. Your, try to get your streets plowed. You'll we're, uh, understand we're, we're gaining residents. We're gaining development. We've got an, an immense amount of development along Main Street, downtown, in the crossroads, and south. All right, Woody, you, you served as spokesman for the anti-e-tax campaign last time around, and you've been an outspoken critic of it for years. Summarize for us, if you would, quickly some of the objections to I'd, the e-tax. Let me just give you one point because it's, it's this fear campaign that we'll have no cops and firefighters if you do away with the earnings tax, which, as you point out, brings in about $260 million. $251 million is the amount you save if the city of Kansas City spends per person what Indianapolis city government spends. Indianapolis is the median city in the group we compare ourselves with. They're right in the middle of the pack. If instead of being at the top, we spent what the middle of the pack spends, we would save the total amount of revenue that the earnings tax brings in. So what's the earnings tax pay for? Excessive spending that other cities don't engage in. And Indianapolis is a successful city. So is Oklahoma City. 
they don't have to spend that that extra 250 quarter of a billion dollars for some reason. Michelle, you live in Kansas City, or you're a Kansas City? I am a Kansas City uh, resident. Why do other cities in the area not have an earnings tax? I don't know why other cities don't have the earnings tax, but at the end of the day, the revenue makes up 42% of the city's budget. The people voted for it time and time again, and this is another attempt to circumvent the will of the people um, by elected officials. Just like with Amendment 1 and Proposition B, we're seeing another attempt for you know representatives to decide what's best for the people when people at the local level and in local control have a better understanding of what's needed um, than those sitting in Jefferson. It's 42% of, of the general fund, not of all their spending by any stretch of the imagination. Well, the Correct. budget's That's somewhere what? in excess of a billion dollars, right. I think, overall. It, it's well, over uh, 42% but the plan of the general fund. Yeah. But his plan doesn't propose another way to make up those revenues, and that's the, the problem, The way every too, other right? big city, the way Indianapolis What, what Patrick Toohey, what if Kansas City had to phase out the earnings tax over a decade? Would the city collapse? No, of course not. It would be perfectly fine. So uh, Woody is right. that The most frustrating part about the city's argument is that it is driven by fear. Fear. We can't do this. Now, the city has known about these efforts for 10 years, didn't have a plan B the first time around, didn't have a plan B the second time around. They are uh, intentionally uh, stirring up all this fear. Meanwhile, the earnings tax itself is a nightmare. It is absolutely regressive. It hits you on the first dollar earned. Uh, and because it's only on earnings, uh, people who are working at McDonald's as a fry cook pay it, whereas people like Rex Sinkfield don't. It is absolutely an unjust tax, and there's a better way that can Yeah, this is this is the will of voters here yeah, in I'm Kansas say, City. If, if, and, if there and, are and all why these a guy reasons, from Wilden Springs, Missouri, is opposing the, the e-tax, I don't get. I don't understand but why there, Woody opposes it. Because to be, the city of Kansas City goes down to Jeff City and says, "You have to do this for us. You have to do that for us because we're the economic engine that drives the state. If you are, then you are of interest to everybody in the state. When you're asking for money." And when you're misrunning your city, either way, you're of interest but to see, everybody. That's, in that's so easy. That's so easy to say to yes, make those is. broad statements. But, and there's no talk about no plan B. There's no yes. plan B for anybody if there's earnings tax. Is, is it fair to say what? that? Indianapolis, At least there's not, not we got to go. Uh, thus far, voters have shown no appetite for doing away with the earnings tax in Kansas City. Right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. By overwhelming, it always numbers. wins. Overwhelming. Right. Right. And yet, right. statewide, they have. But okay. but if but if if it was a different issue and somebody from out state was reaching in and trying to meddle with Kansas City or St. Louis, these guys would be going. Crazy. We're not going to earn one percent more soon. I take it all. Right. Exactly. A new survey tells us two things about what Democrats are looking for in a 2020 presidential nominee. First, Democrats are not sure if they want someone shiny and new, a Beto or Kamala. Or someone tried and true, Joe or Bernie. Democrats seem to be sure, however, of this. They don't want Hillary Clinton to run for a third term as president or run a third time for president. Lest you think it is too early to talk about the next presidential race, this observation from Amy Walter of the respected Cook Political Report. Expect Democrats who are running for president to start making their announcements within a month. I think they already have. So, Michelle, what do you see as the future direction of the Democratic Party, shiny and new or tried and true? I think on some level both. That's why you see, you know, rumors of a Biden-Beto ticket 
surfacing, right? Because that would represent a little bit of both. But I wonder if Dems would go the way of Republicans in 2016 and go with shiny and new. The Republicans in 2016, you had Bush, you know, tried and true, but Trump is what comes, you know, came through. And I wonder if Dems and Democratic voters will go uh, that way in 2016. My, my gut says yes. Well, what's your preference? I think we should go with something shiny and new. When you look at not only shiny and new, but um, when you look at who's winning races at the local level and what is energizing the base, it's not only shiny and new, it's, it's not necessarily even a blue wave, but you're seeing a black and brown wave. You're seeing more black and brown candidates being elected um, than ever before and exciting the base. So uh, I think that, you know, some Dems may be confused about why shiny and new is exciting, um, but tried and true, at least in Missouri, hasn't won. Let me ask you this. New the same as more progressive? In some ways, yes. Um, but if we talk about progressive issues or just issues overall, I think that's what's winning. Not necessarily progressive values but and issues, but issues. If you look at what happened in Missouri in 2018, all of the ballot issues passed marijuana, you know, minimum wage, uh, Amendment 1, campaign finance reform and, and transparency in government, but the candidates at the top of the ticket who would be likely to support that didn't win. So, you know, I think we're asking at this point, what's the matter with Missouri? Not necessarily what's the matter with Kansas, that that's happening. Patrick, my and Ernie, uh, Democratic voters in this survey make it quite clear they don't think Hillary should try again for the presidency. Do you agree? Absolutely. She was a terrible candidate. Why um, is there such a disdain for that woman? It, it, you know what? It, it's not disdain for the woman because she was a good public official. When she held public office, she was good and effective, and she worked across the, the aisle all the time. She, but there, there's a broad gap between being an effective government official and being an effective candidate. She was an awful candidate, and my party decided that she had been there and done the time and done the roles and deserved it without looking really anywhere else. And I think that that was, um, you know, we, we selected one of the few candidates that uh, Trump could beat, and he beat her. Um, it, it really kind of goes to, I, I think, the Democrats... Uh, there's, there's tone deafness on the part of the Democratic Party from a national standpoint about the things that drove people to vote for Donald Trump. Because remember, many of those voters voted for Obama in 08 and again in 12 and then turned and voted for Trump. And so that's not an ideological turn. That's a message communication turn. Other, Patrick, uh, is there no age limit now for people to run for president? Uh, both Biden and Bernie are in their late 70s. Uh, back in 1976, when Ronald Reagan failed to win the Republican nomination in Kansas City, he was 65, and people said that was his last chance. He had no chance to run again, but he did run successfully at 69. So, of course, there's no law that says no. you're barred from but it. But do no. voters have a problem with people as no, they No, it's the kind of thing that uh, if you don't like somebody, you'll imagine you don't like them because of their age. If you like them, you're willing to overlook their age. I think it's one of those things that, that uh, pops up that maybe is a talking point but doesn't really drive votes. I think the shocking thing for Pelosi and Biden and, uh, and uh, Bernie is they're going to find out they're too white for this Democratic Party. And shiny and new may mean more expensive, may be more progressive, or may be more black and brown. It's going to be a bloodbath the next two years, and I am going to enjoy watching. Uh, has Donald Trump been so damaged that he can't win in 2020? Well, that depends on whether the Democrats decide to self-destruct. Uh, you feel at this point almost like saying that whoever wins la next time, it's going to be because the other party self-destructed. Steve Glorioso said to 
Jack Kraft and me a week before the 2016 election. You guys nominated the only person in America who could lose to Hillary Clinton. We nominated the only one who could lose to Donald Trump, and one of them's going to lose. Okay, now we're going to head to the soapbox for Roast and Toast, where the Ruckets have 30 seconds each to cheer, sneer, or leer. And we start with Patrick Tuohy. Uh, well, my toast is very simple. It's to all of Kansas City. It's for a healthy, prosperous, and happy new year. Thank you. And you spent a lot of time preparing that. Uh, Woody. <laughs> I, I actually have a question. about well, it's a roast for the feminist left, but it, it's a question. Are you warrior women or are you defenseless flowers? Uh, I propose a law that every woman has to wear a badge to say, you know, she gets to choose what she wants to be. But I, every time I turn on the TV, some woman cop, woman SEAL team member is beating the hell out of some man and knocking him around and putting handcuffs on him. And little girls are being told they can play football and do anything a man does. And then some woman punches a football player and he punches her back and they say, my God, you can't lay a hand on a woman. We're schizoid about this. And so I propose choice. Every woman chooses. I'm either a defenseless flower or I'm a warrior woman, and you wear a little badge. Cozad comes out for choice. Patrick. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toast Mitt Romney this morning because Mitt Romney um, had the uh, insight and the guts to articulate what everybody else in the Republican Party already knows and understands and everybody who's left the administration feels free to talk about, and that is that this president is uh, completely out of his league and incompetent and uh, and ill-suited to be president of the United States. So um, I salute him this morning and hope that uh, that others uh, hear that call. All right, Michelle, warrior woman that I know you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm choosing uh, to start the new year off with a roast to the worst Happy New Year's tweet post I think I've ever seen in which uh, President Trump uh, thanked the haters, wished a Happy New Year's to his haters, the fake media, and those with Trump derangement um, syndrome. If this is how we're starting 2019, I'm not excited about what's to come. Um, if you want to know if you're too old to run for president or be president, if you're tweeting in all caps to your haters, that might be a sign you're too old to be a running for president. And finally, an association of witches is demanding that President Trump stop calling the Mueller investigation a witch hunt. Their poll numbers are underwater, so the witches believe they have a stake in the battle and are fired up. Trump is not going to give in, so this battle will likely continue for a long spell. And that's Ruckus for this week. We'll be back next Thursday at 7. Now for the Ruckus and the crew, Mike Shannon saying thanks for watching and good night. Fire.